following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I'd like to begin today with a little game. It's going to involve audience participation, so get yourself ready, shake it out, okay, stretch a little bit. Um, This game is entitled Name That Dragon. Okay, I am going to show you a picture of a famous dragon, and you are going to tell me what it is. And um, we've arranged this by, by decade, okay? So each of these, move, these dragons are from a movie. You can just shout out the name of the movie. Extra bonus points if you can tell me the actual name of the dragon, okay? So we've got a, a dragon from the 90s, from the 80s, and from the 70s. Okay, name that dragon. Can you guys handle this today? Okay, you guys ready? Oh boy, this is not looking good, okay? All right, I believe, okay, get psyched up, okay? Let's, let's get the blood flowing. Thank you. All right, let's do this. Okay, first dragon is from the 90s. Any children of the 90s out there? (laughs) Wow, they are still in bed. Okay, they're coming to the last service. Okay, well, all one of you, it's on your shoulders for this one, okay? All right, first dragon, name that movie, name that dragon. What movie is that from? Mulan. Mushu for extra points. Well done. 200 extra points for saying Mushu, points are randomly dispersed. Okay, 200 points, well done, the 90s, okay, you're warmed up. All right, now how about the 80s? Who's excited about the 80s? We got a couple more in there. Okay, here we go. From the 80s, what movie does this dragon come from? Oh, it's a never-ending story. This is such a, that dragon's from never-ending story. Do you know the name of the dragon, anyone? Falcor, two of you. I'm actually a little nervous that you knew that, okay? I was actually hoping no one would know that. I'm actually uncomfortable now. Okay, yes, that's right, Falcor from NeverEnding Story from the 80s. Last one, 70s. Who's ready for this one? No one, okay? No one is ready. You guys, okay. You're ready. Thank you. I feel a little bit better. Last dragon. Name that dragon. Here we go. That's right. It's Elliot who is Pete's Dragon, okay, just for clarification's sake. That is Elliot for Pete's Dragon. You guys, I give you a 50%, okay? That's all you're getting, not even passing, okay? You're so-so on that. Um, Those three dragons are all, something about all three of those dragons, they are all friendly dragons. They are all, in, in our culture movies, we have lately a lot of dragons who are friendly. But I bring this up because dragons throughout history are all throughout mythology, folklore, literature, and they're almost always not friendly. In fact, they're almost always the villains. In fact, one of the most famous storylines and plot lines in all of history around the globe is the basic plot line of an unlikely hero who has to slay the dragon and win the princess. 
That's not just a, a, a familiar plot line in our culture. That basic plot line of slaying the dragon is all over the world. You find these dragons, sometimes they're more like snakes and serpents, sea serpents. Um, they're sea monsters or dragons. They're always reptilian. Sometimes they have a couple, two legs, sometimes four legs, sometimes wings, but they're always some kind of snake-like dragon, and there is a hero who destroys it. So in ancient Hindu literature... There's a hero named Indra, and he has to fight this demon god, Vritra, who turns himself into this snake-like dragon. In Norse mythology, there's a famous story of Thor who has to, to destroy this snake dragon who takes over the world. There's also, in Germanic literature, there's a story of this princess, and she gets this cute little dragon who grows up and holds her hostage, and then this this Guy comes along and, and destroys the dragon, wins the princess. Even down in Egypt, the god Ra in their mythology, their god Ra has to fight this god of chaos and evil, Apophis, and he has to fight him in order to preserve light and truth. There's this constant this theme, this running plot line you see all over the world and all throughout history of this idea of a young hero slaying the serpent or slaying the dragon. And what we're going to do today is I want to show you a plot line that runs through the entire Bible. We're going to dig down into one specific text in just a second. But I want to show you a plot line that runs all the way through. If you were to read the Bible like a novel, you'd see this play out. And it opens up the Bible. I don't want you to turn there because I'm going to send you to another text in just a second. But in the very first couple chapters of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, there's a very famous story that I'm sure you've heard of, of Adam and Eve. They're the first two humans on the planet. And Adam and Eve are there in this beautiful garden, in the Garden of Eden. There is no sin, no death. It's, everything is in perfect harmony. But something comes slithering into the garden, doesn't it? A serpent. And the serpent deceives Eve and she and Adam both disobey God. They eat the forbidden fruit. And then God calls all three of them in front of him and he addresses each of them, telling them the consequences of their sin. He talks to the serpent, to Adam and to Eve, but he says something interesting to the serpent and it sets up a lot. And one way of looking at it, it sets up the plot line of the Bible. It's the story that it starts right here. I don't know if you've ever watched a movie or read a book and everything's going well in the very beginning. You're like, okay, this is going too well. And all of a sudden, the conflict breaks out that they're going to have to resolve in the rest of the story. This is the conflict. Here's what God says to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman. So I'll put a rivalry. I'll put combat between you and the woman, between her, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. At the very beginning of the story in the Bible, God looks at this snake, this serpent, this monster, and he says, I'm going to put rivalry between you and the seed of this woman, the offspring of this woman. And th there's going to be enmity, combat, strife between you two, and ultimately it will culminate in a battle where you will strike his heel, you will wound him, but he will strike your head. He will fatally wound you. Another translation, he will crush your head. And so now, if we're reading through the Bible, we're waiting for this showdown between the seed of this woman, a hero, that will rise up and have combat with this serpent, with this snake. 
All right, I want you to look at 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you have a Bible or Bible app, open to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now, you may, this may be the first time you have ever even been in a church building before, but I bet you've heard of the story of David and Goliath. We're going to take a look at this story together today. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Here's how the story goes. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belonged to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Okay, so here's the setup. They are encamped. There's the valley of Elah is in between them. The Israel's armies are on one hill. You've got the Philistines on another hill. They are the rivals of Israel. They are the enemies. And they've all drawn lines for battle. They're about to do battle. And it says the Philistines send out a champion. Now here's what often happened in ancient times. In ancient times, instead of the whole armies fighting against each other, what would sometimes happen is they would each send out a champion and just the two of them would fight and the fate of all their armies and really their nations were on just these two individuals. And whoever won, the other army would just surrender. The other nation would surrender. They would come out as representatives um, representing all of their people and just two people would fight instead of everyone. Now that didn't always happen, but sometimes that would happen. And this is what the Philistines are trying to initiate. They send out their champion. His name is Goliath. He's from a place called Gath. He's known as Goliath of Gath. Now, when they saw this champion, they were pretty freaked out. And here's why. It says he was six cubits and a span. That's how tall he was. Now, those are ancient measurements. What is a cubit? A cubit is, is the measurement from the tip of someone's finger down to their elbow. A span is from the tip of your pinky out to your thumb if it's spread out like that. Those are how they would measure things. They wouldn't pull out rulers and all technical and stuff. It would be a cubit and a span. This guy stands six cubits and a span. He's roughly nine and a half feet tall. That's why he's known as a giant. Now you might be saying, look, okay, I, it's things like this that makes it hard for me to read the Bible. You know, I, I hear this. You're telling me a guy is almost 10 feet tall in the Bible? I, I don't know. That just doesn't make sense to me. I, it's stories like this that are hard for me to really get into the Bible sometimes. Like if that's where you're at, first of all, I, I'm glad that you're using your brain. And I'm glad that you're here. And if you have that skepticism, I'm, I'm glad that you're here because we want to address the scripture, the text with honest questions. And that's a fair question. You're telling me there's a giant almost 10 feet tall. Well, what I'd say, here's how this is reconciled in my mind. Maybe this will sit well for you. If you've ever opened a copy of the Guinness Book of World Records, you've probably come across a guy by the name of Robert Wadlow. Robert Wadlow lived earlier in the 20th century, and he had a medical condition called acromegaly. And this 
this medical condition is there's people all around the world. It's very documented now. Um, this medical condition is there's a tumor on the pituitary gland, and it sends out extra gr growth hormones through someone's life, and it actually does not stop their growth. They continue growing all of their life. This guy, Robert Wadlow, is the tallest man in recorded history, so like the last 100 years of medical history, tallest man ever recorded. He actually would go around with Ringling Brothers, the circus. And at the time of his death, he was 22 years old. He, it's medically documented he was 8 foot 11 inches. Okay, that didn't move you like I thought it was going to move you. Okay. Almost nine feet tall. Thank you. Almost nine feet tall. Okay, let me, if that didn't move you, let me show you a picture of Robert Wadlow. Okay, here's a picture of him. That's not his children. That's his family. His parents are to, on, the right, on the right side there. That's his parents. Okay, almost nine feet tall. Okay, I saw a, a, a life-size statue of him with a picture of Shaq standing next to the life-size statue of him, and I did the math. I am closer to Shaq's height than Shaq is to Robert Wadlow, okay? Now, I know I'm very tall, but that's still saying something, all right? Okay, Robert Wadlow died at 22. Here's what the doctors said. They said he, was, he would still continue to grow, even though he died prematurely, if he had lived into his 40s, he would have still grown and he would easily have been 10 feet tall. So let me ask you a question. Seeing as that's the tallest man we just have in the last 100 years, isn't it possible that in the thousands of years of human history that someone could have had that condition and lived a little bit longer than 22 years and been upwards of 9 feet tall? This champion named Goliath of Gath, over nine feet tall, walks into the Elah Valley, and it gives you a little more description of what he looked like. I want you to look at verse 5. Here's what it says. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. Now, it takes extra detail to describe what his armor was like, and this is unusual to come across this level of detail describing someone's armor in the Bible. So we should stop and say, okay, why is it giving us all this detail? One of the things you may have noticed in here is that it kept saying that he's covered with bronze from head to toe. Bronze helmet, bronze mail, bronze shin guards. He has a bronze javelin. He is covered from head to toe with bronze. The interesting thing about the word bronze is it's a homonym. In other words, it sounds the exact same as another word in Hebrew. The word for bronze in Hebrew is nachosh. And there's another word, same letters, nachash, which is the word for serpent. So in fact, there's a reference to a bronze serpent earlier in the Bible, and it's, it's a pun. It's a nachosh nachash. It's the same word, same letters for bronze as it is for serpent. It says it four times, head to toe, he's covered in bronze. Is it alluding to maybe that he's serpent-like, he's serpentine? Well, listen to this detail. What it literally says in the Hebrew when it's talking about his coat of mail is he says he has scales, scaled armor. He's covered with scales, this nachosh is covered with scales. This monstrous human being is coming down 
And the Hebrew, original Hebrew text is pushing us to see this guy as a serpentine, snake-like, dragon-like monster that has come down to challenge some champion to come out of Israel and do combat with him in the Elah Valley. He comes out, he makes this big announcement, he's, he's bragging that he'll defeat anyone, he's defying Israel in the name of his gods. It is a terrifying situation. Let's jump ahead. I want you to see what their reaction was when they hear this. There's, a, there's the whole army of Israel are listening to this guy. He comes out, he's announcing he'll kill anyone they send out. They're terrified, but there's another young man who just showed up, a guy named David, who's a shepherd. He's not a soldier. His older brothers are soldiers, and he's brought provisions from his father to his older brothers. But this probably teenager overhears this Goliath say this, this Goliath of Gath, this giant. And here's what it says, verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him and with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So it shall be done to the man who kills him. This guy comes forward, looks like a monster, like a giant bronze snake, nearly 10 feet tall. He's defying their armies, and they are terrified. Who could possibly beat him? I can't do that. I will be crushed. And David says, okay, well, what's going to happen for the guy who goes out there? This is a little shepherd. He's never seen combat. He's not trained. He doesn't know how to handle a sword or a spear or armor. He's just the shepherd. And he says, what's going to happen to the one who destroys this? They say, well, he says, well, the king is going to give him riches and honor and freedom, and he'll give him his daughter in marriage. So let's see if we get the details. Tell me if this sounds like a familiar plot line. A serpent-like monster comes forward, and whatever hero goes forth and slays the dragon gets the princess. You see the plot unfolding here? All the men are, are pulling back in fear. That has been terrifying, but not David. David says, I'll do it. This teenager, I'll do it. Saul tries to put on his armor. He says, I can't wear this. I don't know how to wear this. I don't want, I don't want your armor. I don't want your sword. I don't want your spear. He puts all that aside, and here's what David does next. I just want to read you this story. It's so good. We're just going to read through it. Verse 40. This is talking about David. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David and his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds and the, and of the air and to the beasts of the field. Now, if you're David, I think at this point you're like, I immediately regret doing this. 
can we just take a time out? I forgot something back in the camp. Need to talk to some people. I did not think through this battle. He's coming up. Goliath comes lumbering towards him. He says, I am going to rip you apart and wild beasts are going to eat your flesh. What does David do? Does he flinch? Here's what it says. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. Those are fighting words. When the Philistine, then the Philistine rose and came and drew near to David and David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine and David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There is no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from, from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp and listen, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. See what just happened? Serpent, snake-like, dragon-esque monster comes into the valley. Unlikely hero. Unlike this Philistine, he doesn't put his hope in armor and swords and spears and javelin, unlike his own king Saul who tries to give him swords and armor, David says, my hope and my faith is not in armor. I come in the name of the living God that is all I need. And he walks in brazenly, defies the serpent to his face, staring death down in the eyes. He runs to the battle line and he takes out his sling. Okay, if in your mind you're picturing a sling Dennis the Menace style, okay? You got to put that from your mind. The sling of ancient times was a fearsome weapon. We're talking two long strands of leather with a pouch at the end that they would put a rock in, and they would spin it around with incredible velocity. And what we know from historical records, men who had mastered the sling had unbelievable accuracy, Greater accuracy in some cases than, than a handgun. They would knock out birds in flight. Uh, ancient records of Irish slingers, they said you could put a coin as far away as just so they could barely see it and they could hit it. Slingers in the Old Testament said that they could hit a hair's breadth. 
And, and actually, Israeli um, ballistics experts have done studies, along with historians, on the impact of getting hit with a, a rock from a sling. They said it was still fatal from 200 yards away. So when Goliath says, come close to me, and David runs to the battle, ballistics experts say when that rock hits his forehead, it's not like a BB, bing, okay? It's sunk into his forehead. They say it would be equivalent to getting shot in the face with a 45. This is an important, this is all important. What killed Goliath? The sling. He had no sword in his hand. He walks over and he cuts off the head of Goliath. That was ceremonial. What killed Goliath? His head was crushed. Let's review. A young hero faces down the serpent, delivers the fatal blow by crushing his skull, and wins the princess. So wait a minute, you're saying this story in 1 Samuel, that's the fulfillment of what was promised in, in Genesis chapter 3? Like the story of Genesis 3 is pointing to one day when David rose up and slayed this giant Goliath of Gath, like Genesis is pointing to 1 Samuel? No, 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 no. Genesis and 1 Samuel are pointing to an even greater story. I want you to notice one detail in here at the very end. Did you notice that David takes the head of Goliath of Gath and he takes it to Jerusalem? Did you notice that? Now, Jerusalem, when I first couple times I studied this passage, I'm like, well, of course, he takes it to the capital city. You know, that's where the, the palace is. Of course, that's where you go. But remember, at this point of history, that's not the capital of Israel. That's not even a city of Israel. The enemies, the Jebusites, live in Jerusalem. It's not until 10 or 15 years later that David and his army conquer Jerusalem and then make it a significant city and then make it the capital with his palace. So why does David take this head of Goliath to some random enemy city and post it on a stake or buried into the ground outside the city. Why does he do that? He's pointing to an event that is going to take place there a thousand years later with the seed of the woman, the, her offspring, and actually the direct descendant, the son of David. Something is going to happen outside that city, Jerusalem, that all of this is pointing towards. One more detail. One scholar drew this out, and I think this is an unbelievable possibility. I want you to imagine, when David killed Goliath, that story was instant international news. That story goes viral. He becomes a household name. They write stories, they write songs about this that go on the top 40 immediately, okay? They start singing the song, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. Everyone is talking about this teenager who killed this giant. And you can imagine, they wonder, what is he brazenly doing taking the skull of Goliath of Gath and, and placing it outside this city, Jerusalem? You can imagine 10 to 15 years later when they conquer Jerusalem that his men are going to want to know, where did you put that skull? Where did you put the head of Goliath of Gath? They're going to want to know that. And so what some scholars believe is that that place was remembered, always passed down through history, the spot where David posted the skull of that serpent who had the crushed head. And over time, this is known as the place of Goliath of Gath, and over time, that name is shortened to Golgotha, 
the place of the skull. Now, what would that be pointing to? It's at that spot that the son of David, Jesus Christ, would ultimately deal the death blow to that ancient serpent. How did he deal the death blow to the ancient serpent? That serpent brought two things into this world, sin and evil, evil and death. And Jesus on a hill outside of Jerusalem called Golgotha, the place of the skull, on that place, the son of David, he defeated sin, he died, taking on the sin of his people. He stepped forward as the representative of his people, the champion of his people, our fate resting on his shoulders. And he dies on that cross, defeating sin. And then in a nearby tomb, he comes out of the grave, defeating death itself, the son of David, the representative of his people, taking the fate of his people on his shoulders, defeats, gives the final death blow, crushes the skull of the serpent, defeating sin and death itself. He is the hero. He slayed the dragon, and he won his bride. His bride, the church. Do you realize what this means about your Savior? The story of David and Goliath is painting a picture so you understand even greater what your Jesus has done for you. There was an enemy that came forward, an enemy that defied God's people, an enemy that brought sin. What do you mean by sin? It's all the wrong that we do. It's all the things that we, the, the mistakes that we make that are chaining us down, bringing destruction into our life that we can't overcome. Jesus stares down sin itself being sinless. He takes our sin on himself. He runs to the battle line, brazenly not flinching. He defeats sin. He defeats death. Can you imagine being one of those soldiers standing on the hillside when you see little David going out and you're hoping, you're saying, I can't defeat that giant, but I sure hope that this champion who's representing us can because now my fate is tied. And then you see the sling and your heart soars when you see Goliath get struck on the forehead and fall down. And then you can't help but cheer when the head is put up in the air. And then you see the Philistines running and you can't help yourself but surge into battle and chase down the enemy. That is your story. You have a champion. His name is Jesus Christ, the son of David. And when he's on that cross doing, doing battle against the serpent, your heart should soar when you think that he did what you could not do, saving you from certain death. That is who your champion is. That is the story that's running from beginning to end. It's a hero who slays the serpent, slays the dragon, and wins his bride. You know, it's not just how the Bible starts, it's how the Bible ends. Can I just read you one verse in Revelation? Revelation chapter 12, it has this incredible chapter where it's using this deep imagery where there's a woman in labor giving birth to her child, her offspring, her seed. And he gives this imagery in this chapter of a dragon that's waiting right next to this woman to consume her offspring the moment he is born. And through this chapter, it keeps interchanging serpent and dragon waiting, this monster trying to consume this offspring, but he continually eludes the dragon. And the dragon gets furious. And I want you to see what happens next because this is an, the saga of the universe and you are part of the story. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman 
and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Do you see what that just said? When he couldn't stop that hero, he declared war on his people. On those who are following God's commandments, who are clinging fast to the testimony of Jesus. What's that testimony? It's the good news of the gospel. Those who are clinging to the gospel, that ancient serpent, that dragon, has declared war on you. Can we just have a, a sobering moment of reality here and, and understand the dynamic? This week you'll drive to work, probably sit in traffic, maybe go to Publix, buy some bananas, maybe drop off the kids at school or soccer practice or try and go to the gym, watch a movie. But you realize there's a greater reality happening under the scene. Christian, do you realize there is a war that has been declared against you? You are in the midst of a battle, and the moment you put your faith in Jesus and say, my fate is tied with him, he's dying the death I should have died, but he rose again and defeated death, so one day I too will rise from the dead and spend eternity in heaven. When I say my fate is tied with him, do you realize when you follow Jesus, when you become a mathetes, a disciple of Jesus, you are enlisting in a battle and a war has been declared against you. Do you know right now in this world, Christian brothers and sisters are under violent attack. Even this morning, two different bombings on our Coptic Christian brothers and sisters declaring war against those who are clinging to the testimony of Jesus. It's a reminder of how blessed we are to live in this country, but in the same way God's people don't find their security in armor and weapons, we know that our security is because we come in the name of the living God. And can I remind you that it's the same enemy that is operating around the world that has declared war on you? Because we do not fight against flesh and blood. We fight against the powers of this dark world. There is, while we go about our lives, can we keep a sober reminder that there is a war declared on you? And may we, as in the same way as the Israelites fled after running into the battle, chasing down the enemies of God's people in the same way when we see the son of David walk up to the battle line and deal the death blow away, may we empty out into the battle line and claim turf for the kingdom of God. Church, can I tell you, this is an important week where the church around the world declares that Jesus is victorious over death itself. There is, death has no more sting. There is nothing that can stop someone who comes in the name of Jesus. And this is an important week where we declare that. So we have to charge into the battle. And I want to challenge you this week. We've got to charge into the battle. Let me give you briefly four things that we need to do this week. First thing, Pray like eternity is at stake because it is at stake. Pray for your family. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your church. Pray for those you invite. Pray for opportunities to invite. Pray for everything you can think of that's going to happen here at your church. We're going to send out a list tomorrow so you can be in prayer in more detail, but let's every single day print out that list, pray over it. Let's pray like eternity is at stake because it is. Here's the second thing. 
is we've been talking about this this whole time. If you can sacrifice, rearrange your schedule, and come to the first service, that makes space for those who are coming for the first time to hear the gospel at the 10.30 and 12 o'clock service. If we don't diversify, if we all come like we usually do, we will not fit in those second and third service. Anything you can do to come to the 9 o'clock. Here's the third one. Find a place to serve and let God preach through you. What do you mean preach through me? Do you realize every single one of us has a preaching assignment next Sunday? When you're standing in the parking lot and the person's driving in who says, I don't think I'm supposed to be here. They don't know what, I'm, what I've done. I don't know that God accepts me. And you're the person out there waving and welcoming them in or greeting them at the door or getting them coffee or, or greeting the guest or helping serve over in kids' ministry, taking care of their kids. And you're saying, you're welcome. We're glad you're here. You are part of the declaration of the gospel that God loves those who are far from him. If you don't have a place to serve yet next weekend, write on your connection card, serve, and put that in one of the offering boxes, and we will plug you into a place where there is an opportunity to use your service to declare the gospel. And here's the last thing. Invite like eternity is at stake because it is. Take those cards with you. Your mission is three people at least you're going to hand those cards to. Social media, go on social media, see a bunch of art that you can download and repost, a bunch of posts you can just uh, retweet or repost. Find a way to invite like eternity is at stake because it is. This is, a, this is a week to do battle. And as we know that the son of David moved up to the battle line and defeated death itself, taking our sin on himself. He has won. It's now for time for us to charge into battle after him. You know, there's one thing between Genesis and 1 Samuel that's different. In Genesis, it says the battle, it says that the hero will crush the head of the serpent, but it says that the serpent will strike his heel. What's interesting in 1 Samuel, the story of David and Goliath, David leaves unscathed. He's not wounded. But the greater David, one greater than David, the true hero, it was through his wounds that he was victorious. He was pierced for our transgressions, and by his wounds we are healed. We are going to end our time together with communion today in preparation for this week and the call to arms. We are going to, this is this small meal of broken bread and poured out juice is a declaration of how we've put our faith in Jesus. And so we're going to end our time with communion this morning in just a moment. I'm going to let you come forward. You can come to either of these stations up here. There's two stations in the back. And so in just a moment, I'm going to call you forward. You're going to come forward. You're going to get a piece of the bread and a piece of the juice. You can come forward, take it right here, and then go back to your seat. And we're going to close with a song together declaring the victory that we have in Jesus. If you're here today and you say, look, I don't know where I stand with Jesus, then I want to encourage you just to hold off from taking communion today because this is a proclamation, a declaration that, G, that we've put our faith in Jesus. But maybe you're here today and you're saying, I want to put my faith in Jesus for the first time. I've never done this before, but I'm ready to step over the line. I want to put my faith in Jesus. Then when you come to any of these tables, you'll find the juice has some plastic cups, but in the middle, there's some wooden cups. If you're putting your faith in Jesus for the first time, those wooden cups are for you. Take one of those wooden cups, take it with you as the day commemorating when you put your faith in Jesus 
for the first time. The rest of us will take those plastic cups. Today we are going to proclaim that the symbol, the broken bread symbolizes his broken body and that juice symbolizes his shed blood for us. That one victory for us for eternity. We're going to declare that together. Church, you can begin coming forward or going to the back. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.